Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim. How's it going tonight, Lance? It's going pretty good. How are you? Doing well. Today's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash missing. Lance, what do we have for the audience tonight? Tonight we have part one of a two-part table of contents episode. This is something that we felt was important to put out there because there's so much uh, there's so much uh, with this case. And if you're just getting involved with this case, you're going to need something to reference all the material from. So this is uh, Tim and I going through each one of the episodes, giving a little bit on each one, get a little bit of information on each one. And uh, if you're just getting involved or if you've been following it for a while, this is a great place to start or a great place to uh, to go to uh, to, to reference back um, to, to certain episodes and what we talked about on each one. This is a recap and purposely repetitious with past episodes and with things we learned while producing this podcast and documentary. And if you know the case and this podcast well, we will be sprinkling in some facts and behind-the-scenes personal stories about the production of this podcast and documentary to hopefully keep these two episodes interesting for you guys, too. Okay, so we're going to get to the episode. Please follow us on Twitter at Doc. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find us there. Um, we're also going to CrimeCon in 2017 in June in Indianapolis, and you can use promo code MMPOD20 for 20% off. And Lance and I, along with James Renner, will be having a case discussion at CrimeCon. Maura Murray went missing on cold and dark Route 112 in North Haverhill, New Hampshire, just after 7.30 p.m. on February 9, 2004. Three hours earlier, she left her dorm at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Supposedly, no one knows why she was on Route 112 later that night. We have the rag in the tailpipe, the witness statements, three main theories that divide the investigators and followers of this case nearly 13 years later. Runaway, suicide, or murder. The first thing shot for this documentary was in December of 2013, when we drove to Canada with James Renner. He had contacted me because he had received what he had perceived as a credible lead through his blog posts and through other um, other internet chatter that had gone on for a couple of years that Mora was in Sherbrooke, uh, Canada. After discussing the, the idea about a documentary and including James Renner in the documentary because the primary objective of the documentary was to look at the people uh, who are obsessed with the Mora Murray mystery, I just reached out to James about that. And a couple of weeks later, it was sort of zero to 60. It was like, sure, I'd be I'd be interested in chatting to we need to go to Canada and we need to go before, you know, before Christmas, because she might get wind of me searching for her and she might hightail it out of there. I remember you calling me Lance and asking me if I would be interested in helping produce the documentary. And I said, absolutely. I don't even remember deliberating about it. I know how interested I was in the case when you first told me about it in December of 2011. And then we pretty much bought a plane ticket for James Renner, and we were ready to go to Quebec. 
Yeah, it all came together really quickly, didn't it? We rented uh, a van, kind of a caravan that helped us uh, carry all the equipment. We didn't know what James was going to be bringing. We brought along our uh, our DP, our uh, our, our good uh, good colleague Josh Leonard. He uh, joined us. He was the primary camera guy, and we met James at at a hotel in Revere, Massachusetts. Now, Josh Leonard, that's the guy from the Blair Witch Project. No, not to be confused with the Joshua Leonard from the Blair Witch Project. This is Joshua F. Leonard. Ah, good friend of ours and a great director of photography. Yeah, really talented individual. He recently won. I believe it was Best Picture for his short film, The Rift, which was uh, premiered at the, um, I believe, the first annual 48-hour film festival in Worcester, Massachusetts. So a little plug for you there, Josh. Thanks for your help. This podcast started in July of 2015. Episodes one through three were recorded in one sitting on a hot summer evening in New England. During the recording of these episodes, we were aware we were making some mistakes, but decided then and there to see what happens when we put it out there anyway. Some may call that irresponsible, but it was also an attempt to be interactive with the audience. If we let them correct us, it's a way to connect with more people we may want to interview or work with for this ongoing documentary. And it's a process that we feel at this point was and is extremely important when you're first getting into the case to go through all of the facts and allow yourself to be wrong. In the first three episodes, we take a surface-level overview of Mora's disappearance. We discuss what we knew of the events before Mora left UMass for the White Mountains. We talk about Mora potentially trying to mislead future investigators. Does that look like a girl who might be able to figure something out when it comes to, hey, this cop pulled me over and I cannot get arrested for drunk driving? Yeah, I don't want to look at this picture anymore. It's scaring me. Uh, The other pictures of Maura are, uh, you know, she appears very attractive, very smiley. um, Exactly. Cute, a cute girl. Um, Yeah, you go back to that picture and you put those side side by side and it is... She kind of looks terrifying in this picture. If you Google it, um, just Google Maura Mari, click on the images tab. It's the black and white sort of grained one where she's not smiling at all. Just against a brick wall. Yeah, some kind of concrete wall. Wow. Yeah, so that image just like rolls around in my head when I think about... You know, the all-American girl, and then, oh, she got into a little trouble here. And then you look at that picture, and that is – there's something uh, – can we go back to that? There's no, something. I don't want to look at it. <laughs> there's something in those eyes, though. There's, like, almost yeah. like this, this like – Almost look of a criminal, honestly. It's a criminal look. It, it's, a, it's someone who knows they did wrong and knows they got caught and, and doesn't really have a remorse there that's my opinion on this picture and that's just what i think about when it's when when you think about these things that have happened to her in the days leading up to it the you know the the leaving the party the going to talk to her dad the 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 first accident which there a case can be made about the first accident at umass the one that she was not arrested for drunk driving the there there could be a case to be made that she that that was her first attempt to disappear that she borrowed her dad's car gave him some excuse on why she needed the car and uh, she had it with her and uh, got, you know, just it's a theory that is, uh, you know, something that you can toy around with in your head. She gets in the car, she gets into the accident. And before she can get away, uh, the, the 
the police are called. And then because the next night she gets into the accident that she never. So then she starts thinking like, well, I can't do this in a local spot. Mm -hmm. You know, I got to this. This didn't work here. I got to get I got to go far away to do this. And I got to make it look like I'm getting away. What's the story? The uh, is it the story of the scorpion and the frog? When you're talking about the different sides of people, and if you don't know the story of the scorpion and the frog, there's a scorpion and a frog, and they meet on the bank of a stream, and the scorpion asks the frog to carry him across his back. And the frog asks, "How do I know you won't sting me?" And the scorpion says, "Well, if I sting you while you cross the stream, you know, I'm gonna drown." We'll both die. The frog seems like that's a good enough answer. He's satisfied. They go out. In midstream, the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog feels the, the poison setting in. Can't swim anymore. He starts to sink. And they're both about to drown. And he has just enough time to ask the scorpion why he did it. He says, you're going to die with me. Why did you do this? And the scorpion replies, because it's in my nature. And just thinking about that story and looking at that picture, maybe it's just in someone's nature to always have that kind of risk in your life. Listening back to episodes one through three is a little weird, Lance, don't you agree? I'm sitting here with like flop sweat. It's so embarrassing to listen back to that. Um... I know, I know our intentions were good, but re-listening to that is, it's a little tough. It's a little embarrassing. I'm not going to apologize for anything, but definitely a little wet behind the ears on that. Yeah. And, uh, and I know that I was, came off, uh, very dramatic with my, uh, talking about Mora's picture and saying she has a criminal look in it. And it just is, is very, a lot of cringe worthy moments in these first three episodes for me just gonna say that i was when i was listening to that i i i almost couldn't i i almost i was like oh it's just oh that's the sound that kept coming out of my kept coming out of my mouth but again we keep saying you really need to go through all of it you you really need to listen to yourself after the fact and and understand that where your head was at then and where it's at now yeah time changes your feelings and i definitely you know, I think we both would have recorded these episodes much differently today. Now, episode four was us correcting our mistakes and also reading some emails. We started to understand how many people were listening and we started to receive a lot of feedback on it. And we thought it was important to read some of these emails. Julie emailed us and said two things about after listening to the podcast. One, my husband is a mechanic and I asked him after the intro about the rag in the tailpipe he said it would make things worse, period. On that, Tammy also emailed us, and her husband is also a mechanic. And she asked him about the rag in the tailpipe, and he said there is absolutely no reason to stuff a rag in the tailpipe. If someone did, it would blow out the pipe. He said he knows this because one of the diagnostic tests he does requires him to put a rag in the tailpipe and run the engine. In order to do this, he has to have a second mechanic stand with a long pole and physically keep the rag in the tailpipe. 
He said, in the instance it was stuffed in there and jammed well enough that by some chance it didn't blow out, it would burn up and the car engine would run very slowly and with little power. Eventually the rag would burn up enough and blow out. I'm not a mechanic, but that is a very, very specific answer. And the guy seems to know exactly what would happen if you put a rag in the tailpipe and you drive the car a considerable distance. Yes, but Possumosh on YouTube commented in the completely opposite way. said there are two reasons that I was told to put a rag in my exhaust when I was driving a rust bucket as a lad. I had a car that, like Mara's, had a cylinder that was not functioning properly. This causes two things to happen mechanically. Mara's dad has stated various places that there was, at the very least, a blown head gasket, which can fry a ring on a cylinder because of the lack of lubrication, because of the oil being burned or leaked from the broken head gasket. This causes a lack of compression in the engine, as well as oil to be mixed with the fuel being burned in the good cylinders, which is expelled as a black smoke and burning oil out of the exhaust. So Possumash goes on to say his dad told him to do the same thing when he was around 18 years old, and he's about a year older than Mora. He can also attest to the fact that it worked until he could save up enough money to rebuild his motor. And that did help. Thank you very much. Well, it, it, it helped with a point, but it didn't really help solve the issue at hand. Uh, it actually maybe muddied it because we thought we had the answer that there would be no good to this at all. But uh, here's a comment saying that there still may have been some good from it. It's sort of an old school theory. It could be an old school theory, and I really don't see any reason why somebody like Fred would tell Mora put the rag in the tailpipe knowing that she lives on campus if she's driving she's only going to be driving a short distance and if this is something that actually helps then yeah put the rag in the tailpipe and you know it'll help you in these short distance trips um that being said he you know he didn't know that she was going to be driving off to the white mountains episode five we talked about what we knew at the time about mora's accident on route 112 We also talk about what we thought the odds were that she either ran away to live a peaceful life in Canada or was abducted by an opportunistic killer. I think, uh, you know, stranger things in the world have happened, but I think you have to have a lot of bad elements kind of aligning themselves to come together for that, you know? It's like, you know, this girl decides that she's going to go out and blow off some steam or whatever and happens to fill up gas in an area that happens to have somebody who sees this attractive female and and thinks to themselves, hey, I'm gonna, you know, I've been wanting to do this, and now the you know that dark urge is taking over, and I'm gonna see if I can carry this out. Let's throw the rag in the tailpipe, see if this works. Stranger things have definitely happened in the world, but that Mora would have to be the victim of incredible bad luck. I do agree. Now, what would chances would you put on that if you were in vegas or something what odds would you put of that happening to somebody i mean obviously people are on the road as we speak right now and not getting killed by some opportunistic killer so what are the is it one in a million is it one in five million i can't even put numbers on that there's people who like stalk the streets every day there's an actual statistic out there that you know Every year of your life, you walk past 25 murderers. Right. I agree that those odds are astronomical. 
But what are the odds that a 21-year-old nursing student gets away, you know, successfully disappears for 11 years or more? Well, it's a lot more planned. Yeah, You've got but... a lot more time to think about it and plan it. The, the, the odds that somebody happens upon somebody is way lower than the odds that someone has been planning a, a, to run away for weeks and maybe got their friends involved in helping them run away. Further, we spoke about the cigarette-smoking man who was in the dispatch report, the call logs. At 7.27, Faith Westman called in and reported a vehicle in the ditch right on the sharp turn after the old-weathered barn. She was not sure if there was any person injured, but can see a man in the vehicle smoking a cigarette. Was eastbound on Route 112, but ended up westbound in ditch facing west. So the first report that comes in at 727, Faith Westman says that she saw a man in the vehicle smoking a cigarette. And as we mentioned in our earlier episodes, Faith later said that she might not have been correct about that. All I'm doing right now is just telling you what the earliest reports were. And sometimes you have to go back to the earliest reports to actually get a glimpse of what the truth is. I'm not saying this is the truth, but this is as close to the actual event as we can get. Episode 6 was the first interview we conducted. We spoke with James Renner, who recently wrote a book on the subject of Maura Murray called True Crime Addict. James has also been blogging about this case since 2011 and has put forth a theory of his own which concludes with Maura running away from her boyfriend, family, and promising life. Now, the most memorable moment of this episode would have to be when James stated his opinion of Maura. I think Maura Murray was a sociopath, um, and whether or not you believe that sociopaths have the ability to experience what other people would call love. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think Maura Murray was at her best when she was with Billy Roush. And I think maybe there's a part of her that was trying to change and trying to strive to be a better person. And Billy certainly brought that, that person out. They had their problems like every other couple. Um, but I've talked to, talked to Bill and, uh, he's a stand-up guy. Uh, and his family's a good family. And uh, she was certainly happy and safe when she was with the Rouches here in Ohio. Um, but then, you know, at the end of the summers, at the end of the holidays, she get pulled back into UMass. And, you know, she became that, that girl from Hanson um, who had her secret troubles. And that's when she'd start to get in, into trouble again. We probably shouldn't have let James get away with that as easily as we did. But at the time, this was before we had any contact with the Murray family. And so we really hadn't seen this disappearance from their perspective. And we've gotten angry emails from people in disbelief that Tim and I believe what the people we're interviewing believe. We're still open to any outcome here. Of course, we have some beliefs and theories of our own. But the goal for us is to try to stay impartial and consider any and all potential outcomes. It is important to note that due to new information that has come out, James has since changed his opinion on Mora being a sociopath. If you would like more information on that, check out James's blog, moramari.blogspot.com. 
Episode 7 introduced former journalist Clint Harding and the thought that Mora committed suicide that cold night back in February of 2004. When I try to put everything into context, and I'm going back to actual 911 logs uh, the next day, when Fred is, is, is trying desperately to get a hold of this first responding officer because he has very important information he wants to tell him concerning his daughter. Uh, that information ends up being that it, that uh, he thinks his daughter went to the White Mountains to do personal harm to herself. And that's that's what the lead investigator of the case said was the first words out of Fred's mouth. So so knowing that and knowing that the investigators are starting to are trying to put a picture of who Mara was, uh, they think that she came to their area to do harm to herself. So when Fred actually gets to the area, they're going to start confronting him on, on this kind of stuff. And that's personally what I think happened is I think they mentioned this rag in the tailpipe and, and Fred had to come up with a quick answer for that because it didn't take Fred long to realize that, that the suicide angle is, 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 is bad because police aren't going to pursue that like they would have missing an actual uh, person of a crime, a crime that occurred that night. You know, if you have a person that goes walks away into the mountains that, and they're an adult and they did it on their own free will, you're not going to get the kind of uh, investigation that you would get if it was somebody that met up with foul play. Episode 8, we read and discuss the letters that Fred Murray wrote to two New Hampshire governors. At first, the letters sounded odd, but we've learned much more about Mr. Murray after recording this. And it seems that's the way he talks, and I think we overanalyzed it. What strikes me about this is the language he uses is very articulate and well-written, or the attempts are there to make this sound very, very um, well-written, and uh, and it's almost like over-wordy. You know what I mean? Definitely. First of all, he says, It was grossly negligent of the police not to dispatch a cruiser in active pursuit in a spirited effort to retrieve an unsuspecting and vulnerable girl with a possible head injury and subject to hypothermia because of alcohol and frigid temperatures before she wandered into the pitch black of the national forest looming just ahead. That's like that. That's one sentence right there. And it's 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 like almost poetic. It is very like the national forest, the pitch black of the national forest looming just ahead. And then later on, what I like about it is he starts talking like a regular guy saying like these guys couldn't do this. At one point, he says it has been over three months since her disappearance. It's been a year. So did it take him nine months to write this letter? Yeah, I mean, he could have started writing this uh, like three months into it, right? I mean, I wouldn't question that, that he did, but the way that, you know, there doesn't seem to be any typos, and like you said, it's downright poetic at certain points, that you would have thought that there'd be enough proofreading to make that, you know, it's been a year since her disappearance and not it's been over three months. I mean, it is signed, respectfully, Fred Murray, 
Underneath that, it says February 9, 2005. And underneath that, it says Mr. Frederick Murray. Episode 9, we spoke to James Renner again, this time about Alden Howes Olson and former New Hampshire State Policeman James Conrad, who took to the Murray family Facebook page and wrote that the New Hampshire State Police know what happened to Mora. He wrote, and I quote, I suspect Mora is buried under the suspect's new house. Why the state police hasn't obtained a warrant to excavate that area, I don't know. They have probable cause based on statements made by the suspect himself. And since then, we've made some attempts to contact Mr. Conrad and get to the bottom of what his statements were and what he meant by them. Uh, And how did that go, Tim? Well, we have not heard back from James Conrad to this point. This James A. Conrad uh, was a, uh, a trooper, um, and he, he, just like you said, posted on uh, this official Facebook page that uh, he had inside knowledge of the case and that the police knew who did it, um, that Moore was buried under a house, um, you know, not too far from the, uh, the crime scene. But like everything in this case, you look a little deeper and things get a little weird. And that's what happened with James Conrad. You go back and and look into his history. You start to get a sense that maybe there's a motive for him coming out and saying these things. Conrad was a uh, a state trooper until 2007. Um, At the time, he was separating from his wife. Um, He gave an emotional resignation at his barracks after being accused of entering his ex-wife's home. Uh, During that confrontation, uh, he threatened to pull another trooper's gun uh, in, an, in what appeared to be an attempt uh, of uh, suicide, uh, what, what is known by death by cop. Um, this uh, led to Conrad being arrested and um, detained. Uh, he ended up um, actually suing the, the, the troopers involved for wrongful imprisonment. Um, he was awarded $1.5 million judgment in 2008 over this whole thing. Of course, he lost his job. He has not been a trooper um, since then. Um, and uh, I, I've learned that that $1.5 million judgment was vacated after that. So, you know, does this guy have an axe to grind with state troopers? Um, is he just dealing with old information? Did they really believe that Mora was buried under some house back in 2004, only to, you know, after 2007, when Conrad was long gone, come to the conclusion that, that she ran away? Um, you know, how much of what this guy says is is truth or or was true at the time, it's, it's, it's hard to say. But, you know, on the page, um, when he came out with this information last week, he purported that this is, you know, he's like, uh, you know, this is 100% true. And, you know, I, you have to ask yourself, is it? And why is he coming out now? Episode 10 proved to be probably our first really polarizing episode. We spoke about psychics and their connection to the case. We uh, also played an interview with renowned psychic from Salem, Massachusetts, Lori Bruno. She provided some pretty unique insight to the case. And again, very, very one way or the other with the audience on this one. Because of the topic, this was one of our most controversial episodes, but we were also criticized for giving Lori too much information. Now, we've spoken with Lori since this episode and even interviewed her again. To date, nothing concrete has come of our talk with Lori but we will continue in some capacity, probably off air. And as far as a little bit of explanation on why we gave her 
some information, it was because Lori has actually helped law enforcement locate a deceased girl's body before. And so we were looking at it from that perspective. Can she actually help? We'll give her as much information as possible and see what she comes up with. It wasn't a quiz if Lori was a true psychic or not. Exactly. And one thing that I took from it being a natural skeptic on psychics, she's very intuitive. And she was able to mention some things. And I spoke about this on that episode as well, I believe. She was able to kind of open your mind up to different different uh, scenarios, which I feel is important. Whether or not she's a legit psychic is TBD, but she did provide some feedback and some insight that I felt was important. Icy cold. What was icy cold? Yes, yeah, I just got snowbank. I just got icy, icy cold going through me. They found the car. But they didn't find her. House. Who, who's, whose house was there? Whose house? There's a house there. There's something to do with a house and a man. Off the side. Off the side. Um. Oh, my. In episode 11, we spoke to Dr. Robert Eckstein, a professor of forensic psychology at the University of New Hampshire. He spoke about the term sociopath, and he also gave us his thoughts on the case. The PCLR is its the work of Robert Hare, who's a, 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 a Canadian um, forensic psychologist. There are, um, and just to give you like a little information, there, there are 20 criteria for it or 20 symptoms. Um, it's a very rare diagnosis. It's a, it's a difficult, you know, threshold to cross. Uh, to give you an example of that, the majority of prisoners in the United States are not psychopaths. It's, it's, a, it's, it's tough to be, to really get that diagnosis. Now, in fairness to you guys, um, and, and, and just to create a caveat for that, the PCLR was designed for inmates, so it was standardized at forensic hospitals and at prisons. So it does, um, it might not be picking up some of the qualities of a non-criminal psychopath. So, and I, what you guys mentioned this and you were right about this. There are psychopaths in the business world. There are psychopaths sometimes in our families. Um, there are psychopaths among us that might not score exceedingly high on the PCLR because it is intended for more of a forensic um, crowd. That being said, I I don't see evidence of of more being a psychopath, and I'll I'll take you through some of the reasons why. In episode twelve, we spoke with Clint Harding again, and this time we spoke about theories around the rusty knife, the red truck, and the A-frame house, which we explored at the twelve-year anniversary in February up there in New Hampshire. Uneasy is the word that I would give to what it feels like to be in that house. Maybe it's because of all we've heard about it, but it is not a very comfortable place to be. And the owners at the time, who are no longer the owners, would wholeheartedly agree with you. This knife that Fred was given... Um, this is uh, the, the Moulton brothers, correct? Lawrence James Moulton was the brother that turned in the knife, and he is no longer alive. 
uh, and the brother was was Claude Moulton. And Claude Moulton uh, actually lived at one time in this A-frame house that was on uh, Valley Road, which is not far from the accident scene. This was Fred that made sure that they investigated this A-frame house because this is where one of the Moulton brothers, the one that supposedly killed Mara, this is where he lived at one time with his girlfriend, this the A-frame house. So Fred made, and how he was able to gain access to this house was because it was vacant at the time, and he got with the realtor, and they and they approved him to be able to go in and bring in his his dogs and his search his uh, investigators into this house. We did a live podcast with James Renner for episode thirteen, and the live aspect was something new and interesting for us. It was more difficult than it usually is, but I think gave us an interesting opportunity to be interactive with our audience. Yeah, I feel at this point. We were getting enough feedback and we knew enough people were listening and wanted more information and wanted to interact with us on another level. So we thought it would be a good idea to do this live episode and, and see who was out there and, and how they were uh, how they were following the case and how they were following Renner and what kind of um, what kind of what kind of showing we would have. So I go up there and by myself and. Uh... I stop in at the, the Swiftwater Stage Shop, which is this log cabiny kind of convenience store that's about a mile from where Mora got into the accident up there. And I thought, hey, let me stop here and see if they know anything, because everybody kind of in this area must come in kind of into this convenience store to buy toilet paper in the middle of the winter, because there's nothing else nearby unless you want to travel five miles back to the to the Walmart, I guess. But um, you know, that's the most convenient place. So I go in there and, uh, there's this guy behind the counter and bald head. And, uh, I'm like, Hey, I'm a journalist and, uh, I'm here writing about more Murray. Is there anything you can tell me about her? Um, and specifically at that time I was, I was interested in getting a little more information about the guy on the corner, um, that was questioned by police. And, uh, and he said, uh, um, essentially, you know, I have nothing to say to you. I'm tired of talking about that missing woman, um, and you better get out of my store right now. Um, and uh, you know, I was this was five years ago, and um, not as wise as I am today. Uh, you know, I, I when somebody tells me to you know uh, get out of their place of business when I'm you know trying to get information about a missing person, my blood starts to boil. And I don't want to listen to them anymore. Um, and so I kind of, I kind of grinned at him, and and I'm like, well, it's really interesting to me that you know a guy that owns a business here that would have information on this case that might be helpful in finding a missing woman um, doesn't want to say anything about her. I said, why would you know why would that be? Why would you be so against talking about this? Uh, you know, and and he said, "I'm going to tell you one more time to get out of my store. I'm going to bash your head in." And uh, and I said, uh, "Well, I don't know that I want to go just yet." And uh, and then he reached underneath his uh, counter, and he came out with this big bat, and uh, and he came up to me, and at that point, I'm heading out of the door, and uh, um. We get on the front steps, and I turn back around, and I'm like, I wonder what the police would say right now. Um, this man leasing me out of out of his store for asking questions about this missing woman. 
Um, and, and so he didn't like that either. And he came at me and, uh, and went up to swing and we both look over and just, it's, you know, perfect scene out of a movie. There are these biker guys hanging out, eating sandwiches and they just kind of look at us and we look at them and the guy, you know, puts down his bat and walks back in and I turn around and get my car and leave. Um, you know, so that was my incident at the Swiftwater uh, shop there. Next, we spoke with possibly the most polarizing character who surrounds this case, a man from the White Mountains named John Smith, who we called out in episode eight. One of the major aspects of what we're trying to do is to filter out all of those trolls. So when you make a comment like that, you are really just giving yourself enough rope to hang yourself with. You are showing what you're capable of doing, which is confusing the whole situation. If you want to keep doing that, that's fine, but people need to know that you need to ignore this. If you have real information, say it. Don't just keep insulting the people who really want to find the truth here. If you are some truth seeker, like you say, and have done some investigation of your own on this and know something that we should know, then contact us and stop trolling us. John has been known to have worked with the Murray family, and he regularly speaks to Fred. He gave us a long chat, which resulted in a two-episode interview. When was the first time you approached the Murray family uh, to provide some assistance? Uh, I saw um, on WMUR, our local TV station up here, I saw the uh, uh, the piece about Maura Murray um, immediately became um, uh, involved in my mind because I wanted to know what happened. It happened 15 miles from my house. Um, and then uh, I called the Murray family probably probably March, the first week in March. I don't recall exactly. They might have it written down someplace. I don't. Um, I called them to offer my assistance, told them I was a local person. I know a lot of people. I know the roads like the back of my hand. Um, I can help you out. I can get you around up here. I'm an ex-police officer. You know, we, you know, I can help you. Um, they talked to me, um, uh, and they said, okay, whatever. Thank you for calling. Um, they, of course, being my name, John Smith, and I don't blame them all, they called the police um, to find out who John Smith is. Um, and the two detectives uh, came to my workplace and uh, wanted to talk to me about calling the Murrays. And I said, well, what's the problem? You know, why, why is there a problem with me calling the Murrays? And I said, I'm just offering my help to them. You know, I'm a nice guy. I just want to help them out. Um, how would you feel if it was your daughter? Um, and they said, look, this is an investigation. We don't need you involved in it. If you persist, we will arrest you for interfering with an investigation. Well, you know, being, you know, a guy who's just working and doing his job and whatever, I was like, all right, you know, good luck to the Murrays. I, you know, that was what I said. Um, about two weeks later, Fred Murray 
caught me in Franconia at the supermarket. Him and his family load full of car, his car load full of family. And I have chills right now talking about this because it was one of the worst days of my life because Fred got out of his car and said, John Smith. And I said, hi, Mr. Murray. I mean, I knew what he looked like by that time. Um, and uh, he says, you know, you offered your help before and we want it again now. And I said, I can't, sir. I said, if, if I do, they're going to arrest me. And I said, I, you know, I just, I don't want to get arrested. You know, I said, I, I have a clean record. I, I don't need this. And I mean, the look on his face, and I'll never forget it, it, um, <laughs> it was heart-wrenching. And I'm getting broken up over it right now because I was denying a man a chance to help find his daughter. And, and I wish I had jumped on the boat then. Um, and it was about, I think I waited three weeks and I couldn't stand it anymore. I couldn't take the, the angst, the anxiety. I, I called him back and I said, I'm here. And it's 11 years later and I'm still here. So For episode 16, we meant to bring you a hike to what we refer to as the coordinates. This episode is the most difficult to summarize and the one I probably recommend the most. While it was not comfortable to live through this moment in real time, it did make for what I'd call my favorite episode. We ended up bringing you some audio from our first in-person meeting with John Smith, as well as a quick interview with Tim Westman, whose wife, Faith, was one who placed the call to the police that night about Maura's accident. Would you uh, want to talk to us at all? No, I've talked to too many people already. Yeah. I haven't got anything different to say. Yeah. Whatever you heard, uh, some of it isn't true. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of it isn't true. Um, can I ask one one question about about um, what you and your wife saw that night? Was there? I know that her first report was that there was a person smoking a, a, in the passenger seat, a man. Uh, we saw a glow in the passenger seat. There was only ever one person. Oh, really? Okay. And then when we returned back to our hotel in Lincoln, New Hampshire, we started to get a feeling that someone had been tracking us. We originally came up here to um, follow up on the tip that was emailed to James Renner, the coordinates in the, uh, on Mount Kerrigan which basically said, stop looking, her body is here. That was about a year and a half ago, and James got another email um, in the beginning of October. It was like a, a little rhyme. Twice a year ago, I told you where. Look again, she is still there. So we had full intentions of coming up here. This was planned for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. To we were come trying up here. to be private about it. Trying to be private, uh, only told a few people what exactly we were doing. And even um, John Smith didn't know what we were doing until today. Mm-hmm. Like, specifically what we were doing, according to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we had everything together, had GPS navigation. We have a hiker with her. Uh, yeah, had a guide. Hiker. 
with um the you know the GPS unit navigation locator. Completely freaked him out tonight. Yep, completely freaked him out. Um, so, <laughs> needless to say, we will not be going on the hike tomorrow because of uh, emails we received from Miles Wainwright making us think that he knew where we were. And uh, oh. a veiled threat yeah. that came through. Oh, and don't forget about the penny that we got. And the penny, to us. yeah, yeah. Uh, on Friday, there was a. Uh, we were uh, mentioned in a tweet. From someone named Deathpool? Uh, Boneyard. Boneyard, oh yeah. Boneyard, yeah. who operates a Deathpool. Right, I think their ha- their handle is Deathpool 2015. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a, uh, a shot of a penny on a uh, plastic uh, coffee, coffee lid, lid a to-go lid. Uh, the penny was 1982. That was the year Moore was born. And it's Lincoln on the penny. Right, and Lincoln, the, New Hampshire. Lincoln, New Hampshire... And it said, uh, in the trenches, deep in the trenches, hashtag Maura Murray at Maura Murray Doc at James Renner. And that was uh, the day before that we left. And then after that, we uh, had a great day with um, John Smith. And then once we got back, we had the, uh, the email from Miles Wainwright. Yeah. Which read, Tommy Conrad was thinking about saying something before he was basically assassinated in front of his mother to send a message to everyone in the area to mind your own goddamn business. Clearly not a threat. Yeah, right. Yeah. You wrote back, is that a threat? He wrote back, oh, definitely not. I appreciate the work you guys are doing. Have you talked with Tommy's family? So that is part one of our Table of Contents episode. How did you think it went, Lance? Well, other than the cringeworthy parts, I think it went pretty well. I think it's very important to put this together and catalog it in a Table of Contents type fashion. And other than those parts where I knew I was so right back then and uh, it's not the case now, um, I feel like every, everyone who's starting this or everyone who needs a reference point now has it. And it's a, it's a bit overdue. Next time on Missing Maura Murray, we will get into part two of this recap, and we will finally talk candidly about what happened with the missing episode 18. And thank you to Blue Apron for sponsoring this podcast. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash missing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. <laughs>